Welcome to the Moody Prof Cast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing these various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to our, talk to our guest, Dr. Tim Sisk. Dr. Timothy Sisk is Dean and Faculty and Professor of Internet and Culture, Intercultural Studies at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Sisk has been in vocational ministry for nearly over 30 years. He specializes in church planting, history missions, and global theology. He earned a demon from Fuller Theological Seminary, a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. Tim and his wife Donna have four children actively served together at Faith Fellowship Church in Oak Brook, Illinois. Dr. Sisk and his wife Donna served as missionaries for 14 years in Japan and about four years in Bolivia. He also co-authored the Third Wave Movement and Missions Today and co-edited Reflections on Urban Missions for the 21st century. Dr. Sisk, thank you for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here with you. So uh, Dr. Sisk actually has a similar background to me. He actually grew up as a missionary kid in Japan and returned as a missionary to Japan. So me and him were just talking earlier about our experience in Japan, people we know, both know, and yeah, that's something that's very unique to our guest today is the common experience we have about experiencing and growing up in Japan and Japanese culture and in a multicultural context. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Sisk on the show to talk about intercultural studies, theology, and missions, and what does it mean for the church to engage with missions in the 21st century? How is the how is missions changing in the 21st century? These are all topics that I'm going to be discussing about with Dr. Sisk. So Dr. Sisk, tell us about how you ended up in Japan and Bolivia as missionaries. And what are some major lessons you've learned from those experiences? Sure. So I grew up in Japan. My parents went there when I was four years old. And so all I knew was Japan at that time. I mean, that to me, Japanese life was normal life. That's what everybody did. And that's how everybody functioned in that way. So I was there until I was about 13 years old. So went to an international school there. And that was a great experience in the sense that I was surrounded by a bunch of international kids. Uh, my class usually had eight, ten nationalities in them, so folks that worked for embassies and folks that worked for national corporations. So it was a joy to kind of get to know global people in that way, and I, I grew up with all kinds of people from across the globe. So that, that was normal to me. When I came back to the States and everybody was the same, in, in the class as I was going one year when I was back here in the States, it just felt really odd. So that was really influential in my life. As I became older and started thinking about where I would serve and what kind of work I would do, I, I always went back to Japan. I mean, that, you couldn't get away from the need that was there when it came to the work of Jesus Christ and the people that I love. And so having that opportunity of both engaging people that I love and appreciate, place where I was comfortable serving, also with a, with a great need. So going back to Japan was almost kind of a natural. And so when I was in high school, I kind of set my face in that direction. Donna and I started dating when we were in college, and uh, she knew she knew this was what she was getting into. That, that that's where I was headed, and so we had the opportunity of going there while I was in seminary, doing some internships. And so we, once I was finished with seminary, we went we met back together there. As far as Bolivia, Bolivia was not really so much of a choice of mine as it was an invitation from the mission organization. We were serving in Japan. I was completely happy doing church planning and theological education there. But the mission organization had some work going on in Bolivia that they saw that they felt like I had certain things that I could offer that. And so it was a four to five year project. They asked if we would go. And my initial reaction was, no, uh, I don't speak Spanish. Uh, I don't even know where exactly where Bolivia is. So I know it's in South America, but I couldn't put it on a map. And so we initially said no, but then they said, well, go visit and see. And so once we went there and saw the need there and the opportunities that were there, we decided to make the move. So we moved from Japan to Bolivia 
to serve there for the next four years. Yeah, I definitely understand that what you're saying about finding kind of your people in the international schools. I remember I before I moved to Japan a little bit later. I, I wasn't born there, but my mom is Japanese as well, so it's an integral part of my culture. Yeah. And I remember I went to ja- I was homeschooled for the first two years, and I went to Japanese school for sixth and seventh grade. Then I went back to on furlough, which is coming back for a year to the states to check up. Uh, with churches, I went to a public middle school in the inner city of Minneapolis. <laughs> okay. Total culture flip-flop. <laughs> yeah. Like, I went from public Japanese school where I'm the only non-Japanese kid yeah. to, like, an inner city school where I'm, like, the only Asian kid and everybody else is either black or Hispanic. Yeah. And so those are just two flip-flopped cultures. I didn't really feel like I fit in in either. I really struggled to fit in. But then I remember when I went to my international school – um, called Christian Academy in Japan, yeah. I was like, oh, here's my people. This is where I belong. And it's such a unique intersection between those two, uh, this kind of interesting relationship between the U.S. Um, and Japan and that that mixture. And so tell us how you process this uh, your, this need to go back to Japan from growing up in your childhood. What, what do you, um, what are things, some things you love about Japanese culture and what drew you to call these people, like all oh, the people that I'm called to, the people that I love? Yeah. I I think I watched my mom and dad do ministry there and just saw the great need there. I mean, despite the fact that missionaries can freely come and go to Japan, it's one of the most unreached people groups in the world. Yeah. And so as you start to think about doing ministry, and I was here in the States at that time, and you start looking around at churches and the number of applications they get for for one small pastoral job of some kind or the opportunities that were there— I just could never get out of my mind the great needs that were in Japan. While you know there may be 50 applicants for a church here, there's nobody willing to go and start a church there in Japan or to reach some of the most unreached people there. So, because I couldn't, I couldn't shed that. I couldn't get rid of it, and it was always there. And so I just kind of set my heart to doing that. And so it was really the need more than anything else. But along with the fact that I just had a lot of great friends in Japan, some some wonderful memories of how God sustained our family there, kept us, and how he used my mom and dad as, as they served as missionaries there. And so I thought, why not? Why not? And what a better way to invest a life than to go there and and start talking about Christ to people that have never heard of the gospel and start engaging in church planning where, where so often there, there are no churches in cities of 10 or 15 or 20,000 people. So, Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting cultural dynamic that you have. Like, it's very free country. Like there aren't, there isn't any legislation that really is pinning down against religious institutions. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely something I noticed. But it's definitely that cultural dynamic that makes it so hard. They call it the missionary graveyard, and I've seen missionaries that go there, and I've seen I've seen the whole stages. I've seen when they're first coming on their vision trip, they're coming <laughs> to visit. They're saying, "I'm going to raise support. I'm going to come back." They come back. They go to language school. They start doing <laughs> ministry, and then they just gradually they just start feeling more and more burnt out. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely that dynamic of being in a collectivist culture, right. you know, in that kind of society where yeah. I remember I used to hear this proverb in Japanese school where they say, Deiru kuigai like yep. the hammer that sticks out, <laughs> or sorry, the nail that sticks out will be hammered down. Yep. And so what are some ways you've been able to process that reality of being, you know, a foreigner, maybe the word that we call is gaijin in Japan? What were some struggles that you had and how have you learn to overcome these struggles? I mean, honestly, I think having grown up there, I didn't think a lot about it when I went back as an adult. Mm-hmm. I was used to that. I, I feel like that was normal to me. It was a bigger leap for my wife. I mean, having to go there and learn Japanese, as you know, learning Japanese as a kid is one thing. Learning it as an adult, it's one of the more difficult languages to learn. So that becomes a huge barrier for new missionaries that are going there. Uh, yeah, you can get a missionary visa. Uh, there's no outward persecution of religious faith there. But the language becomes a huge barrier 
the culture, because it is collectivistic, becomes a huge barrier as well. I mean, along with that, though, however, I mean, as I start to look at issues that are going on here in the United States, I wish we had some of that collectivistic mentality here where you think not just what's best for me, but what's best for our society. And in Japan, I saw that in church life. It, was all, it wasn't always what's best for me, but what's best for our church. I saw it in our neighborhood, right, because people would sacrifice for the good of the neighborhood. They would all get out and work on a given day because that's what the neighborhood did. And you just don't see that much here in the United States. And I think sometimes our society is stretched because of that. So while the collectivistic society has its negatives, and this is the way you mentioned there, it's, if you stick out, you're going to get hammered at times. And that's hard for Christians because for followers of Jesus Christ, they do stick out in one way or the other. But as far as for the health of a society, we need some of that as well because yeah. you, re- you start to think along the lines of not what's just best for me, but is this best for our society? Oh, yeah, I've definitely noticed that in terms of like the imperative is like what is best for – and there's so many different circles and facets you can get to. Yeah. I remember when I was in Bukatsu, the, the club in sure. middle school, the Japanese basketball team. It's all about like thinking about your, your team first, your company, your family, your country, all these different collectivistic mindsets. And what I really – what I've grown to appreciate about it is how anybody can have honor in whatever job they have. Yeah. The honor comes from their commitment and dedication to their craft rather than how much they're compensated or how much um, fame they have. Yeah. So a garbage man can hold honor. A, a train man can hold honor. Which, yeah, in America, a train man is just like – that's like <laughs> driving a bus, you yeah. know, or a taxi. But in Japan, it's like it's highly content. Yeah. Like they drive – people, they drive the society in a literal sense. And that's something I've definitely uh, grown to appreciate. And I, I've seen that need in the States too where like expressive individualism has really kind of overtaken – a lot of our ethic, and we forget to think about what does yeah. it mean to love our neighbor? What yeah. does it mean to look out as a body of Christ? Exactly. And I remember when I was in, yeah, the various churches that we would go to, like after the church trips ended, everybody was doing something to help. Right. Because we had transitioned to lunchtime. Yep. So someone, everybody's like sweeping, moving tables, cooking. There's like the only person that sits down is the pastor because right. that's just the way it works. You know, they're in the seat of honor <laughs> yeah. while everybody else is going out and helping. Yeah. But it's like that that mindset, like I am part of the body of Christ. Yeah. So, I read a book a long time ago called You've Got to Have Wah. It was about American baseball players yes. who come to Japan to play baseball there. And, you know, American baseball is more about individualism oftentimes. I mean, sure, there's a team aspect to it. But when you get to Japan, wah is that idea of harmony or peace. And and they oftentimes didn't fit in with the team. They wanted to do their own thing. When it was over, they wanted to go home instead of doing team activities. And so in Japanese work and in Japanese play, the wah part is always there, doing it together. And we see that played out in church, just like you mentioned. And it's, it's a really is a beautiful thing in that sense. You, you get the sense of, well, this is one body. And I think it does reflect some of the scriptural principles that we have about local churches. Oh, yeah, for sure. I love that that concept of wah. And, um, yeah, it really makes me think about, like, what does it mean to work as the body of Christ and, and, and in, a, in a sense of harmony? What does it mean to achieve harmony? What does it mean to fill and subdue the earth? What are some other, like, Japanese or Eastern principles that you've seen that we could implement into our church structure and how we live as the body of Christ? I think you mentioned one of those. I just saw how oftentimes here in the church, here in the United States, we go to church and we, we're there for an hour, we go there for two hours, and then we just go home. Mm-hmm. Whereas in many Japanese churches, because sometimes people have to travel distances to get to the church, they spend the day there oftentimes. They'll come and have a meal together, then they may have another service, or they'll go out and do some kind of ministry along with one another. And so they really do give their Sundays to ministry, because oftentimes they don't have time during the week to be able to do that. 
but they they give priority to that kind of service. Uh, I think the other thing is, and you mentioned this as well, is just everybody's got a job. Everybody's doing something. It doesn't matter. One of the things I learned from a Japanese pastor when we first got there was like, no matter how young the believer is, give them something to do because that's how they will begin to see themselves and fit into to the community in that way. And I think oftentimes church here in the States is more of a spectator sport, whereas there there's much more of this involvement of taking on responsibility and taking on roles in the body of Christ and making sure we function well in that way. Yeah, for sure. I definitely see that in terms of in Japan, it can oftentimes go to the other extreme, too. Yeah. With workaholism is a huge, exactly. huge problem that yeah. I see. And I worked as an English teacher in Tokyo for four months. And, you know, I would leave at 630. I'd come back at 930. I'd, I'd probably walk 20,000 steps going to various <laughs> different schools. And it's exhausting. Yeah. But what's really notable about the Japanese believers is that a lot of them work six days a week. A lot of them working 70 hours a week. Yeah. And they still get up on Sunday morning yeah. to go to church. Yeah. And that's definitely something that I've seen that we could definitely implement in terms of like an, a, a better ethic for work, a better yeah. ethic for how do we understand ourselves as a body of Christ, a better ethic for sacrificing our time um, for Christ rather than going to Sunday service as an entertainment value, but rather to participate in the body of Christ. Yeah. What are some... Uh, some principles or lessons you've learned about intercultural communication. I, I don't have that experience of living in Bolivia or in a South American context. I can only really speak into uh, two cultures, but you have this tricultural experience. What are some, some observations you can take away from observing all three cultures? Um, yeah, I think for me, it's going in as a learner. It's always trying mm -hmm. to find out how they are functioning. So one of the things that I found really important is to read the literature of the, of the country. Right? What, how are they, what kind of literature are they reading? What are they writing? And you, you pick up a lot about, about a culture as you read their literature. I think reading the history from their perspective as well. So oftentimes we, we read history from the, from the victor side, whoever won the war, whoever won the territory. They write the history, and so that, that's history from one perspective. But if we're willing to go and read the history from their perspective, it oftentimes gives us a better, better opportunity of learning that. Um, yeah, so I, I think th those are a couple of things. But for me, it's it's listening. It's being willing to step aside and say, okay, how do they function? How do they make decisions here? I mean, in Japan, with a very collectivistic society, I'd sit in meetings with Japanese pastors and Japanese board members of organizations, and you realize you don't just take a vote at the very beginning. You pretty much wait until everybody's already on the same side, and then you vote, and sure enough, it's 13 to nothing, right? Everybody's voted the same way. Here in the States, it doesn't matter. Well, if it's 13 to 2, we don't care. Right? We, well, I voted my conscience. But there it's much more thinking about how, how are they functioning as a group? How, how will we move forward from this? And so that part of it is really, I found really helpful to see how they function in those ways. And as an outsider, how do I fit into that? And maybe I need to challenge some of that. But oftentimes, as Americans, we're used to going in and doing it our own way, as opposed to saying, here's how the people already do it. This is their natural way of doing that. How do I fit in as an outsider to, to accommodate that? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, yeah, that collectivistic ethic, rather than I'm going to come here and bulldoze. Yeah. Rather, the approach with somewhere like especially Japanese culture is much more like I need to learn the culture. And people won't listen. They don't want to listen to you uh, if you don't really understand what you're talking about. Have you done the work to learn the language? Right. You know, and so when they hear someone speaking Japanese, that's not Japanese, particularly more from a Western context. They want to listen. Right. Um, yeah. And that's definitely something. And some of my experience, too, where it's like context matters for everybody. Yeah. And so if you come from a culture where you only know one perspective and one kind of cultural narrative and context that they come from, you meet someone that comes from a different context. It's like you're going to have trouble communicating because your values are going to be different. In Japan, 
it's very indirect, right? You know, and so I had trouble sometimes with yeah. my roommates communicating about problems I had. <laughs> I didn't want to be direct, right. so it was very indirect, and they kind of had to, they kind of had to catch on. But now I've become much more accustomed yeah. to the American way yeah. uh, or the Western way sure. of communicating. Yeah, and I think if you, as you move to Bolivia and especially South American culture like that, you start thinking about. In America, we're so time conscious, right? We're like everything's got to run on on time, and even in Japan, it's that way. I mean, trains all run on time, right? But I went from Japan, where the trains run on the minute, to Bolivia, where you're lucky if they run on the day. But they're not as time conscious. They're they're much more relationship, right? So if, if you just sit down and chat with somebody, and you, it takes an hour, it takes two hours, they don't really care. They're not looking to move to the next thing. I think moving to Bolivia really taught me that. It taught me to slow down. Uh, I mean, Japanese have a concept of time like that too. Uh, I remember reading this book called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God, right, in, in Japan. It was written by a Japanese theologian, and he, he was pushing the concept that sometimes we, we're in such a hurry that we miss what God's doing. And I know in Bolivia, having you know lived in the States and then lived in Japan where it's rush, 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 go, go hard, there it's oftentimes just sit down, you know, drink some tea, uh, eat, eat some chicken with somebody, just take time to, maybe you don't feel like you're accomplishing anything, but you're really building into the relationships. And I, that really was influential in my life even as an adult, to have to be challenged in that way, to think along the lines of, I don't have to accomplish something right now. Maybe just spending time with this person is the best thing I could be doing. Mm, yeah, I remember I have a, I have a friend, my friend Bolivia, and sometimes I would have trouble communicating because his concept of time and my concept <laughs> of time are two extremes, yeah. right? Like I'm like I come in Japan, it's like I remember I would observe the train coming and the doors would open right on the dot. Right yep. at the dot. The, yeah. the, the smallest hand hits zero. And that's when the doors open. I'm yeah. like I'm accustomed to that. And so I remember I had to in order to communicate properly, I would have to tell him, "Oh, everybody else me at six. Hey, <laughs> you we're meeting at 5:45. We're meeting at 5:30." You know, and it's just it's that communication yeah. context. Um, My first year in Japan in Bolivia was the hardest year because of that. Because you you know you you move directly from Japan to Bolivia and you're yeah. just you're so accustomed to that. And it's like, okay, I've got to totally kind of reprogram myself when it comes to time. I remember going to a wedding one night and you know it's supposed to start at eight o'clock and it's ten o'clock and nobody's ever started. And I'm like, well, where, what's going on here? Why are we starting the wedding? They're like, well, you know, the bride shows up whenever she's ready and that's when we do it. And they would, nobody was worried about it. Nobody was anxious. We were just all sitting around talking. For them, it wasn't a matter of how do we get this wedding finished so that we can move on to the next thing. It was just a matter of enjoying that experience. And so those four years in Bolivia really tried to start to mold me and change me. I, I noticed when I got back to the States, so I quickly reverted back to my old ways. Yeah, I remember I can have... As I've you know grown and observed different cultures and interact with international students, I kind of developed this arrogance about like, well, I know what intercultural communication is like. I lived between two cultures, but Japan and America are pretty similar actually in terms in of some they, areas, yeah, and yeah. how they think about time, yep. um, and how much work you put in oftentimes. Yep. And so that's something I, I really had to get over. Whereas I went, I remember I went to study abroad in Greece, and it's much more of that. Yeah, where like they literally everybody takes August off just right. to go island hopping, right. and I'm like. That sounds amazing. <laughs> but, I mean, their economy isn't the best. But, you know, it's reflective of their values sure. and their core, core values um, for sure. Yeah. So what are some things that you see seeing changing for missions in the future? Some people say Bible, being bivocational is the future for missions. Do you see any major changes coming in how we do international missions in the future? I think we're probably going to see more of that simply because – 
you know, the vast majority of the most unreached people groups are in nations where we can't get a missionary visa. It's not like Japan or, or Bolivia even where you can go and get a visa from the consulate to be able to go there. So you're going to have to find a way in there. So tent making, businesses, mission, those kind of things become avenues for access. And so I think we're going to have to start thinking along the lines of how do I both have theological and biblical training, but how do I mash that up with some other kind of training that gives me access to a given country? And so I think we're going to have to start thinking that way a lot more. I know here at Moody, I always encourage some of our ICS students, like, you've got really good Bible and theology training. Maybe the next step is not seminary training, but maybe the next step is going and getting an MBA or going and learning agriculture or going and getting a degree in IT so that you can, that will give you access to a different country. I think if we're going to reach those most unreached people groups, we're going to have to think along those lines because the traditional methodologies of getting there is not going to work in some of those countries. I still think, however, there's still room for people who are going to do theological education or people who are going to do church planning in places where there aren't many churches or where there's still ability to be able to get there. But we're going to have to think along those lines of how do we train people to do that kind of ministry in the future. And right now, I don't think our systems are really set up that well for that. Hmm. What are some uh, good examples of business as missions that you've seen from your experience? Yeah, I think some of the traditional platforms have been teaching English. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's people in Japan do that. People in China do that. People do that in the Middle East. That, that's still a means to do that. But I think also when you start thinking about some of these nations that are fairly impoverished, oftentimes how do we do how do we create businesses that not only provide access for me, but provide a, a livable wage for people that are there? How do we provide a business that will provide income for them to care for their families in those ways? And so I think some people are doing, they're creating goods, right? Whereas labor is cheaper there, you're able to create goods that you're able to ship around the world. But that's not easily done. Long-term sustainable development is really difficult. I mean, just ask the UN, right? Over the last 50 years, we spent $2 trillion trying to help places in Africa or places in the poorer regions of South America or other impoverished nations. And oftentimes that aid has not been really used well. So it's not a matter of being cold-hearted. It's oftentimes a matter of how do we develop sustainable development. And even within outside of the world of Christianity, that is a debate. But I think it's a it's an area that we as followers of Jesus Christ are going to have to engage in as well. That not just a Band-Aid. Sure, we can feed somebody for today, but how do we help them so that they're able to feed their family for the next year, for the next five years? Mm. And that's much, much harder to do. And I'm not so sure we're ready to have those conversations yet because we sometimes think more short term, like what can we get done today as opposed to long term development? And I think we can we can learn from that, but it's going to take some people from the Christian world who will go into that kind of thing and learn that well and then bring those skills and abilities uh, back to the Christian world, to the missionary world and help us think through those areas. Mm. What are some uh, businesses that you might have seen that have been able to do this in sense, equipping them to achieve their own dignity? Like we have, you know, the sewing machine projects. We have microservicing loans. What are some examples? Maybe you could point more from your experience in Bolivia um, in regards to like these businesses that help to give dig- dignity um, and help these people to create, to create services and work yeah. for themselves. The difficulty we had in Bolivia was we could help an individual create some kind of business, a sewing business or a, you know, a lot of mobile food shop kind of things where people could f- sell food. The difficulty we had there was, was helping people create larger businesses for export. Uh, uh, Bolivia is a landlocked country, so getting exports out of there is really difficult. It's either air, which is very expensive, or across the horrible roads that take you to Chile or to Argentina. 
And that was quite expensive as well. So in, in places like that, sometimes we've not really had really good solutions to do that. If, you're, if you've got a country that has a port or the ability to be able to export, then there are always means of creating businesses or creating partnerships with businesses here in the United States and having them bring their the creative uh, platforms to those countries where labor is cheaper and enables people to be have livable wages and to care for their families in those ways. So we're, we're seeking to find those things, you know, People tried coffee, right, and that, that works in some ways. But uh, people are – I t- heard of people doing – like having fish farms where you grow fish that provide protein for the people that live there but also provide jobs for people who are working those fish farms. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting situation, especially when you have a landlocked country. It's all these different factors that I, I haven't even considered in yeah. terms of how I think what – even missions is. I've actually heard about those roads in Bolivia, the the death road. Yeah. Have you ever been on that before? I've never been on it, no. no. Okay, okay. Yeah. One day, <laughs> that's kind of one of my goals. I watch those Top Gear <laughs> videos and I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of crazy, but I want to do it. Yeah, I've been on some of those mountain passes where there are no guardrails and you think, boy, this is the end of it for me. But yeah, I mean, especially when you get up in the mountain areas of, of Bolivia. Uh, there's all those kind of places. But transportation becomes very difficult. I mean, even between the major cities in Bolivia, sometimes the transportation is not really good. But then you start to get in some of these really rural areas where they have agricultural lands, but there's no way to get whatever they grow out of there to uh, to a market that would provide a decent income for them. Mm. I've also seen, too, well, my experience uh, being an English teacher, how sometimes using language, different languages, right? Japanese culture is the communication is highly contingent upon the cultural presuppositions. I recall a story I read about how Korean airlines rechanged their policy where the air fl- uh, pilots have to speak English with each other because what had happened before was they had these Korean pilots that were flying down to Southeast Asia, forget exactly which country, and the weather, I forget what exactly, the navigator, yeah, the navigator was telling the, you know, the head pilot oh, it looks like it'll be kind of cloudy in this area. What he was actually saying with the context was he was saying there's a major storm and we're going to crash and, and die <laughs> if we don't avoid it. But because Ugh. of the hierarchy and seniority system that's built in Korean, yeah. which is actually very similar to Japanese in yeah. terms of that hierarchy system, they eventually, the whole plane crashed and burned. They changed it so mm. that those pilots can no longer speak Korean with each other, but now have to speak English. How have you seen how, in your experience, language has affected how you communicate uh, the gospel to people? How, how have you seen those kind of instances where English has actually helped to open doors for those kind of conversations? Yeah, I mean, in, in Japan, you know, sometimes people would come and engage with you, maybe show up at a church service or become your friend or invite you over just because you spoke English and they had an interest in English in that way. I found it opened a lot of doors to, to create friendships and to create relationships like that. I didn't find it as a very good means of communicating the gospel. Because hmm. when you start talking about spiritual issues, that's a whole other level of language, right? Yeah. It's one thing to talk about the weather. It's another thing to talk about your family members. But when you start to talk about things of the soul and of God, it really does. It's a whole depth of language there that oftentimes was not able to be communicated to somebody that didn't know English very well. And for that reason, I, I found using gospel presentations needed to be done in, in Japanese. Hmm. In Bolivia, there really wasn't a, a really big push to learn English there, simply because there wasn't a lot of trade going on, right? And in Japan, everybody's trading, right? There's trade, uh, every, export, import business is huge. Bolivia didn't really have that, and so they didn't really have this d- 
innate desire to learn English. And so there it was, it was learn Spanish, but in, in, in many cases you were dealing with people up in the highlands who Spanish, they may have spoken Spanish, but they may have spoken Aymara or Quechua or something like that. And so then it was a matter of how do we speak in their, in their native tongues and their heart languages to be able to communicate the gospel to them. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in Bolivia, I found you get out in the rural areas and you, you may be dealing with people that had very little education. They may have gone to school one or two years, but some of them are trilingual. They knew three different languages, uh, not because they went to school, but simply because that was their life. They were surrounded by those languages and they learned to speak them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting seeing, yeah, how spiritual matters are communicated and how much context really builds up to like, your presuppositions about who God is and what the gospel is. And so maybe in Japan, oftentimes I've seen the struggle could be like, oh, the concept of just having one God can yeah. be a bit foreign for them. It's more like, oh, like because they're in a sense – they're they're secular Shinto Buddhists, but not but they're also super superstitious and kind of believe in those those right. gods as well, and so it's a very interesting dynamic that you have. What are some barriers you've seen um, that you've encountered in terms of theological presuppositions in missions that you've done? Well, yeah, I, I think it starts with what you even call God, like yeah. in Japan, right? They they use the word kami. Well, kami is a Shinto term. I mean, so if you just say God loves you, without explaining who the God you're talking about is. I, You've really not communicated the gospel in any way. You've you've simply you know said something that they totally understand in a very different way. So I think, as a communicator of the gospel, you've got to put yourself in that position and understand what do they hear when they hear kami? What do they hear when they hear jigoku or hell? What do they hear when they hear salvation? Sukui. What, what does that mean? Uh, how how do they understand that? So, for me, it's it's backing way back up and saying, okay. I can't meet them there because they're not there yet. I've got to get on the ramp way back here and start walking them towards that area. And so while the presentation of the gospel, we think, well, I can tell somebody the gospel in five minutes. In Japan, I found out this may take five or six hours for me on a weekly basis to walk with them, to, to help them understand who the God of the Bible is and why they need a Savior. And what does what does sin mean? What does tsumi mean? Because tsumi in Japanese is oftentimes just a, it's a crime, right? You've committed a crime. Whereas uh, the biblical concept of sin is very different than that. So he- helping them understand that takes a lot more time. It's not simply a matter of handing them one simple little tract and think they're going to get it because of that. Hmm. What do you think are also some other root reasons why Christianity has been ta- it's been so hard to take a root in that culture compared to somewhere like South Korea? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people have taken shots at why that happened. I mean, I think probably it's got its historical roots back in the 1500s when Christianity first entered in Japan. It was it was stamped out pretty rapidly after about after they started seeing pretty large numbers of conversions, the Roman Catholic priests did, and they stamped it out, and they persecuted the Christians widely in those ways. And so a lot of people would say, well, Japan had its chance then, and they didn't respond to the gospel, so that ended it. I think the other thing is, you know, MacArthur called for a 1,000 missionaries to come in after World War II. Uh, he saw it as, I think he he wasn't so much for the spiritual reasons. I think he really wanted, he saw Christianity as a way of kind of civilizing the Japanese and keeping them from rebelling. But, I mean, he, he called for a 1,000 missionaries to come, because he thought, well, they're defeated people. Maybe they'd be willing to listen at that time. But the Japanese have been resilient in those ways. Despite the defeats they suffered under World War II, they still weren't willing to give up their ancestral religions. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, your, your family, and you've probably looked across the Japan Sea and saw how 
the, the Koreans came to Christ and how you saw large numbers of people coming and say, why, why isn't that happening here? And I think for many Japanese mission, for many American missionaries in Japan, that's always been a heartbreak to, to see the lack of results that we've, we've seen there. But my prayer has always been to continue to sow the seed there and, and pray to God that he would one day reap a harvest there. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a really interesting context because a lot, for a lot of Japanese people, it seems like to become Christian is in a sense to cease to be Japanese. Yeah. And in a collectivistic culture where you must adopt all the ideals of society, of what an honorable man is to adopt Christianity is, is in a sense surrendering your Japanese-ness or at least your Japanese spirituality and then surrendering to a Western or an American, whatever you want to call it, right. religion and spirituality. And I've definitely seen that hesitancy. How, what have you seen has really born fruit in your ministry experience in Japanese culture? I think time. Mm-hmm. I think engaging with people, being willing to walk alongside of them. I mean, in Japan, I don't know about your, your experience, but for our experience was when you initially do church planning, oftentimes the, the first people that respond to the gospel are usually women. And so probably 75 to 80 percent of the church in Japan are women in that sense. And so you've got to be willing to say, Thanks be to God, right? This is this is the this is the place where there's we're seeing fruit. We'll minister in those ways because oftentimes it's the women who are raising the children. There's a certain loneliness there because their husbands are workaholics and they're out all the time. They may have time to be able to come to a Bible study or to a women's crafts thing, or they may be concerned about the kids, so they want their kids to learn English, so they'll bring them to a Sunday school where they're. So we start there, and so for us, our initial church plant there in the first three or four years, we had nothing but women coming. And we were grateful for that, but we were also seeking to reach their husbands. And so with time, the, hus- the wives would invite us over. We'd engage with the husbands. I would, you know, go play tennis with them. We'd do, go play golf or it's, it's something, some way to connect with them in that, in that way. We begin to see some of the husbands come to Christ. But it was a, it was a long-term approach to it of saying, we're going to keep sowing the seed here. We're going to keep loving these people. And so for me, it was a matter of patience. Uh, when it comes to spiritual work in Japan, if you get in a hurry, you'll you'll burn out really quickly because you're not going to see great results most of the time. So in Japan, if, if your goal is short-term results, then you're probably in for a rude awakening because oftentimes it's a matter of saying, we're here to stay. We're here to sow the seed. We'll keep working here. We'll be a presence here. And I think that says something. I mean, Japan has a really long, long history. You know, they look at the, a country like the United States, and we're, we're a young nation in, in comparison to their, their age. And so they're used to waiting people out, right? They're used to people, you know, t- things taking time. And so one of the things I learned from Japanese pastors was, Let, let's just keep doing the right thing. Let's just keep sowing the seed. Uh, they weren't willing to abandon ship in those ways. And so that was a good lesson for me to learn from my uh, senior Japanese pastors as they did that to say, okay, I, I can do that as well. I can be patient and not be weary in well-doing. Yeah, it's really interesting how oftentimes our notion of what it means to witness and report a salvation in the states is really rooted in re- American revivalism. Yeah, and it's very it's a very foreign concept to Japanese culture. There's not really been these kind of societal awakenings uh, to certain ideas in that sense in Japan. For example, maybe an extreme ideology you can point to is imperialism in World War II, but that was deeply rooted in yeah. its culture and its ideology of who the emperor is and what the Japanese people are. Right. Because, you know, they're the land of the rising sun. They believe they're <laughs> little descendants of Queen Himiko, who is a, a, a god yeah. who bore, pretty much gave birth to Japan. And it's deeply rooted in their culture. And so 
that's kind of what something I see too. It's just like that the cultural presuppositions that build into it. It's yeah. really hard to to see this kind of revivalism. It can be frustrating for some missionaries that come back to the states to report their work, and all they have is like two families, right? You know, and I'm like, praise God for that. Sure, you and know? they've always seen themselves as an island nation. I mean, they oh, are yeah. an island nation, right? And they they've prided themselves on that. They, I mean. They call us guy genes, right? Outside people. And so you know, we come from the outside and we bear foreign ideas. And the Japanese are great at kind of sucking the nectar out of whatever they want to and then kind of spitting the rest of it out, but engaging that. And I think we saw that after World War II. I mean, after World War II, they were devastated. The economy was devastated, but they were able to take manufacturing of cars. And when they first started making cars and tried to export them, nobody wanted them. They're pieces of junk. But they said, we can do this better. And they, they did, right, to where they became one of the largest producers of cars across the globe, where people are envious of the, of the products that they make. And so they're really good at kind of taking what they want out of something and engaging with that. And I think, I think it shows, too, with Christianity. Uh, Japanese people have a high respect for Christianity. I mean, polls will show that they respect it because they see Christianity as running orphanages in very poor places and doing good things across the globe. They just don't want Christianity per se, right? They like what it does. They like some of the concepts of it, but they don't see it as part of who they are because it's not Japanese. Mm, yeah, it's definitely true about how Japan has been very good at in a sense, like sucking the bone marrow out of certain aspects, or like you said, sucking up the nectar in terms of, yeah, so many different aspects, how their industrialization, their technology. Um, but yet, it's so interesting how Japan can also be so backward in some areas as well. Because, like, you go to Japanese school, everything is textbooks and chalkboards, no computers in sites, no iPads. I went to public school. I remember in 2006, we were doing computer lab classes. Everybody got an assigned Mac to them. And then I go to Japanese school in 2010 <laughs> 2000, or 2011. It's all back to chalkboards and textbooks. And when you go to government. memory, right? Rote memory. Yeah. You go to the government, <laughs> you got to get a physical stamp. There's yeah. no digital application systems at all. And it's very interesting um, how they've adopted this kind of system in terms of adopting good cultural aspects, but then not really wanting to buy the whole aspect of it, you yeah. know. They very much have learned how to Japanese make something Japanese out of everything, right? To Japanize it, if you will. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. I've also seen um, really interesting concept called I just it's Japandi. It's this. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a furniture style where they combined Scandinavian and Japanese aesthetics to create a new <laughs> furniture style. And that's why Japanese actually love IKEA. IKEA, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very <laughs> interesting example. But I want to circle back to some advice you might have for someone thinking about missions what do you what would you say to someone considering doing overseas missions what does it mean to process this and to answer god's calling well i think we've got to realize that the the need is still great out there i mean when we talk about the world we're talking about 29 percent of the world still has no access to the gospel so i hear people talk about well the days of missions are over it's like well no until that reaches zero until we've at least got a witness in all these unreached people groups we we need to continue on now how we go about doing that may change a bit but there's still a great need out there we I think in, in some ways the, the United States is losing some steam in that way. We're not seeing as many people dedicate themselves to going to missions anymore. But we've still got great need out there across the globe. And so I think we've got to re-energize our churches to help them see that the fields are still wide into harvest. There's still great need out there. And we need to be involved in that. We need to be encouraging young people to go. We need to be supporting them, help them, help them get there. So I think that's part of it. I think another thing is we've got to realize that we've got to consider some of our methodologies of how we're going about doing that and how we're training people to be able to do that. So what do we need to do about that? I think the other thing is for us to realize as Americans, we go painted with a certain 
color, right? People are expecting certain things. They know enough about America. Americans have a reputation across the globe. Oftentimes, that's not a very good reputation. And so we we shouldn't go in naively thinking, oh, they're going to welcome us in those ways. We've already got some strikes against us because of that. So can we learn to go in and with humility, can we go in to learn? Go in with as learners. Can we go in to say we are here to serve the church here? How can we best serve the church? As opposed to we've come here with the answers. Listen to us. And oftentimes that's the way U.S. foreign policy has been conducted. That's oftentimes how missions has been conducted. And I think we've got to change that attitude. And I'm I'm hopeful because I think your generation and the generations coming behind you are more sensitized to those kind of things. And I think they'll be better at doing that, at being listeners and being learners and being true partners in the gospel. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely learned that aspect about, and I think I've seen a, a great need for this as well, is understanding of like who we are in the world, that Americans are actually a minority. I think they compose about 3% of the world's population. Yeah. Uh, 50% of them are in Asia as well. And also, yeah, being able to understand humbly what other cultures are, being a student of culture, coming to know the, the language, how language forms identity right. and presuppositions and thinking and culture. Like those are all different aspects I think we all definitely need to explore as yeah. well. I mean, we talk about contextualization of the gospel. The number one step of contextualization is language. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the simplest. I mean, it's hard to, to learn language and to get it at a skill level where you're really able to communicate in it. But I think that's such an important part of it. If we don't do that, then we have missed that very first step of contextualization in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and J- Japanese as well, especially is like, I think it's, one of the hardest to learn from an English yeah. speaker, I think it's number two, number one, number three, I forget. Yeah, it's in there. The top five for sure. Yep. Something like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. And definitely like, yeah, putting in the work to learn languages. It sucks because you become a child again. <laughs> you know, you sound like a child and you have to work your way up. And it's Well, that's one of the reasons experience. why I didn't want to move to Bolivia because I knew I'd have to start all over again. And Donna was thrilled about it because she's like, well, now you're back to zero like me. And so we can start together because when we went to Japan, of course, I kind of jumped right into ministry. Right. Although, you know, I left when I was 13 and went back when I was in my mid-20s. I, I went to language school for a while just to clean up my language, right? Because Japanese is tiered, as you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, 13-year-olds speak one way. Adults or people in the pulpit speak a completely different way in some ways. So I needed to up my language in that way. But, yeah, going and starting from zero is humbling, you know, when you've got all this education and you think, well, I'm, I'm this and that, but you can't get the first words out of your mouth. And so it is humbling in that sense, but I think— if people see you really striving in that way and seeking to try to learn it, that, that you gain a certain respect in that way also. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Sisk, as our time runs out, I want to ask you our one special question that I am asking everybody that comes through this podcast. What is one book, obviously aside from the Bible, that you think everyone should read? Yeah, I saw you where you asked me to respond to that question. That's always hard for me because I read a lot, so it's always the book I read last. But I think as I thought about it, the one book I would point people to, especially given where we are with the church, and then uh, is a book by Henry Nowen called In the Name of Jesus. It's about relevancy, which we put so much value on, but he, he approaches it from a different way. And I, I everything I've read by now and has been really helpful to me. And it's a small booklet, but it's really convicting. So I think if there's one book I would encourage people to give thought to, In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nowen. Oh, I definitely got to check that out now. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Sisk, for coming on the show. We've loved having you, and we hope that you we can hear from you again. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Sisk. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonah Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. 
The music featured is the song Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.